You know, there's a, there's a saying that, uh, that drives me a little bit crazy, and it's a saying that's, that's mistakenly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He's everybody's favorite 13th century monk. I know you all have your rankings of 13th century monks. He's probably at the top of that for most of you. And he's one of those guys, when you say, like, St. Francis said it, everybody goes, oh, it must be good, it must be true then. But he didn't say it, so, you know, whatever. But this is the saying, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? Maybe you've used it even before. I'm about to uh, assault you with, uh, with some truth bombs here. Um, so th- there's, some, there's some really good truth in that saying. Because it's a reminder that our conduct matters. That how we live matters. That if you're a follower of Jesus and you want people to know Jesus, that uh, you, you, you actually need to be living it out. That if you don't, your witness isn't going to have a lot of power or, or conviction. So that's important. And, and it serves as a correction as well to the kind of mindset that kind of alienates everybody because you're only interested in having a conversation with them if you can convert them, right? That was 16-year-old Craig. And perhaps not coincidentally, I was not the most popular kid in high school. And approximately zero of my friends came to faith in Jesus through my debating with them. Uh, so I think this, this kind of serves as a correction to that. But I, I think it's an overcorrection. This saying is an overcorrection because it kind of uh, puts a dividing line between, between life and speech. It, it says you can, you can bear witness in one way, but not the other. And that your words are like this, like a fire alarm that you have to break the glass in case of emergency. You know, it's like, well, I've tried everything else and it's, nothing's worked. So here I come with Jesus' words, watch out. You know, last resort, here I come. And I just think you, you can't have one with, without the other. They go hand in hand. The clearest rebuke, I think, to that kind of way of thinking is Romans 10, where Paul says, how can they call on the one they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, most of you would not identify yourselves as preachers. Uh, You don't have the same calling as Paul, but Paul's point that I think is applicable to us is that if people are going to know Jesus... And if you are a Christian, that by definition, as we talked about last week, should be a desire in your heart that people would know him as well. And if that's going to be the case, then words aren't an if necessary. They are necessary. They're crucial. They're a central part of this, that we actually let people know who Jesus is through our words. But I think a lot of you know that. And your struggle is more in terms of feeling ill-equipped to use those words. And so that's why last week and this week, I want to kind of pause, slow down a little bit in Athens, because here we're getting a master class from one of the master evangelists in church history, uh, from from Paul. We saw last week, so he comes into Athens, Athens, the, the intellectual capital of the ancient world, this famous renowned city, the city of philosophers like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, And Paul comes in, and before he ever opens his mouth, he does a few things. We talked about this last week, this this pre-evangelism, where he's walking around, he's taking note of the idols in the city, he's he's watching, listening, he's asking, maybe maybe we could say we would ask questions, we try to understand why people think and, and believe and worship the way they do in our culture. So just that that kind of listening action. And then we see how Paul's heart is moved by the idols, that his heart is distressed 
And we talked about how our hearts, we want our hearts to be shaped the way God's heart is, is shaped towards idolatry. That there is this, this, this deep longing for people to turn from that and turn to him. And then third of all, we saw how Paul located himself in key places in society, in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And how we want to be present in the lives of the people around us, present in our communities, so that there will be open doors. So that was, that's all good. That's all important. But today we look at what happens when Paul actually does open his mouth. So pray, we'll pray, and then, and then Acts 17 verse 22 is where we'll pick it up. Lord, I, I thank you so much already for this morning, for the time of worship, um, for, for the, the way, Lord, that we've just been led to lift our eyes to you. Lord, I pray that, that uh, now, even in this time, that you would be shaping and forming our hearts. Lord, that we would have soft hearts towards your word, soft hearts towards you, towards your character, towards your, your ways. And I pray that you would transform us this morning, Lord. Change us so that we could go out in, in, a, in a new way, in an empowered way to make you known. Pray this in your name. Amen. So Paul, um, Paul's going around. He's, he's sharing this, this idea about Jesus, the gospel. And, and he's invited to come in front of the Areopagus. I looked it up. I listened to it on YouTube. Listen to that word on YouTube. So he's, he's invited to come, and the Areopagus was both a rock outcropping, out just kind of by the Acropolis in Athens, but it was also the name for the ruling council of Athens. So it's not that Paul's on trial here, it's that he is being invited to kind of speak to the leaders of the city uh, about this new idea, because they're fascinated by new ideas. They want to know, what's this crazy thing you're talking about? So that's the context. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council 
Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So here we've got the birth of, of the church in Athens. It's not, it's not an overwhelming response, but there are a couple of people, there are, there are a number of people, including a couple of influential intellectuals uh, who come to faith in Jesus and form this, this new church. But as we look at what Paul says here in this speech, there's a few things that stand out to me about what Paul does. And so we're going to track this through. We're going to track a bit of a, a model of cultural engagement. And we'll look at four things that he did and one thing really briefly that he didn't do. So that's where we're going to go. First thing he, he does, first thing he says is, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now this would have sounded like a compliment to them, I think. Because other people said this about them too. Josephus, he was a first century Jewish historian. He said that the Athenians were more religious than any of the, of the other Greeks. Pausanias, another uh, Athenian a century later, said that the Athenians were renowned as the ones who venerated the gods more than anyone else in the world. Athens actually had 140 different religious festivals during the year. 140! I mean, I think Canada's gone overboard with special days and holidays, but Athens had 140 different religious festivals every year. They were crazy about this. And so Paul, Paul acknowledges that. He sees that. And for them, I think they would have, they would have heard, okay, Paul knows us. This newcomer, this, this visitor to us, he gets us. He gets what we're about. There, um, some people think that what Paul does here is that he uses a speaking technique, a rhetorical technique known as the captatio benevolentiae. I know, right? See, Latin comes, I think Italian comes from Latin, so I just assume when you pronounce Latin, it should just sound like Mario, but I could be wrong. <laughs> uh, so the, 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 speaking, the, the speaking technique was that you want to you kind of want to butter up your audience at the beginning, right? You want to say all kinds of wonderful things. I'd say, you know, you guys are the, are the, the best-looking, most spiritual church I have ever seen in my life. Truly, it is an honor to be here in front of you. I can't believe my good luck. You know, like that kind of thing. None of that's true, but you, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You guys are wonderful. I love you so much. Uh, but you kind of butter people up, right? And, and for some of the, the orators of the ancient world, it really didn't matter if any of it was true. In fact, it didn't matter if anything you were going to say was true because some of those orators just loved the feeling of being able to move people and persuade people. So they didn't even necessarily believe what they were even saying. It was just the, the power trip of, of stirring up people's emotions and, and getting them to kind of change their minds about something. Some people think maybe like Paul is engaging in some of this flattery to that same effect, but we know that's not true. We know that for Paul, this was, this was deeply authentic. We, we know that from the passage we looked at last week where his heart is distressed by the idols. This stuff hit him deeply. He's in Athens. He's filled with compassion, with grief, with longing. Like this isn't a show. This isn't inauthentic. It's It's real. We know this, we all know this, but it bears repeating, it bears reflecting on again, that if you want people to listen to you, you need to be able to show them that you actually genuinely care about them. If you actually like them, that's going to go a long ways. I remember years ago being in Superstore, and I don't know if you do this, probably this is mostly a guy thing, but I was like, I don't need a shopping cart. I'm not, I'm not getting a shopping cart. This basket and my two bare hands will do just fine. 
And so I go in, and it turns out it probably wasn't fine. Like, it, obviously, I should have got a shopping cart because I got, like, boxes of cereal on my head. I'm carrying jugs of milk all over the place. Like, it was just, like, it was way too much. But this guy comes up to me. I have no idea who this guy is. He's a stranger. I've never met him before. And he comes up to me and starts giving me a mini lecture about how I should have gotten a shopping cart. I'm like, what, what do you care? Like, you don't even know me? And you know what it, wanted me, what it made me want to do? It made me want to, like, not use a shopping cart even harder. Like, I was like, watch me. I am up for this challenge. I'm going to do this, right? And I think that's how some people feel about Christians sometimes, is that, oh, man, these Christians, they're always just wanting to tell me how to live, what to do, but they don't even know me. They don't even care about me. And, and I, you know, I just think, like, if you want, if, if the world is going to be open to the good news about Jesus, people in the world need to know that Christians actually genuinely like them, care about them. There's not like, it's, it's not like we're just, like, checking off boxes on a, on a you know, on a to-do list or anything like that, but that this is coming genuinely from the heart. I think that's what happens for Paul. So he says that. He kind of opens up. He's, he's befriending them. But even that compliment has got a much deeper uh, meaning and intent to it. Because for Paul, their religiosity is evidence that they haven't found what they're looking for, right? I mean, that's, that's why they've, they've put up idols to everything, is because they, they haven't actually figured it out. Like, there's this, this recognition of, we're, we're, we're still looking. That's why Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and all those other famous philosophers spent their days thinking and teaching because they were trying to figure out who, who is God, what's human life, what's this world about. And so the second thing Paul does is that he looks for, we'll call them bridge points. We'll use this metaphor because we're at the bridge. We'll use this metaphor of of building a bridge. There's a chasm between their religiousness and their knowledge of the one true God. And so Paul is going to build some bridges and he's going to look for some solid common ground that he can use as kind of a launching pad for that bridge. You understand the metaphor? We're the bridge, so you better understand it, right? Bridging the, ga- the chasm, bridging the gap. He does this in a couple of ways. So one way is that he points to this, this altar that we talked about last week with this inscription to an unknown God. And archaeologists haven't actually found this altar particularly in Athens, but they found other altars like this in Greek civilization that, that, kind of, that had these inscriptions to unknown gods. The Greeks were, uh, they were, they were mainly polytheistic, right? They had all the, the gods in the, in the pantheon. And so if you believe in like a ton of gods, you kind of figure, well, we probably don't know all of them. We probably don't know all of their names. So we don't want to offend any of them. What if we don't know one that's especially powerful? So let's cover our bases, you know? Let's, let's make sure we're safe. Let's put up an altar to an unknown God just in case, you know, he comes looking for us. You know, we're like, no, 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 we had something for you. So that's kind of the, that's, that's the mindset, that's the attitude. And Paul sees in this just a, a, a sliver of ground, perhaps. And it's not, I don't think it's that Paul thought that this altar was actually secretly to the, the, the God of, of the Bible, but rather that it was their confession of ignorance, their recognition that they didn't know everything about the divine. And Paul kind of goes, look, I, I can help you out here. I've got some knowledge. I, I can help fill you in on, on what's missing. And so in this way, Paul is kind of building, building this bridge, starting to kind of say, hey, I can, I can do this for you. 
Now, the word um, unknown in the Greek is the word agnosto, which you might recognize as the English word agnostic. It's that recognition that I don't know for sure, one way or the other. And that's a long ways from biblical faith, but it is, it's something that, that it's, it's an opening. It's, it's a recognition. I haven't figured everything out. There's, there's something, there's, a, there's an open door that doesn't exist when somebody is like hard and fast, right? So that's what Paul sees. Now, the, the other way that he does this is in verse, I think it's verse 26. No, verse, uh, verse 28, where he quotes two different Greek poets. So first he, he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. And that seems probably, seems like a quote from the Greek poet Epimenides. And it originally would have had to do with Zeus, the, the high god of Greek mythology. But here Paul is saying, well, actually, what that Greek poet said would apply to, to God, that, that he is, he's creator, he's the one we live and move and have our being in. Um, kind of like uh, Paul says in Colossians about Jesus is the one for whom all things were made, through whom all things were made, that kind of thing. And then he quotes a Greek poet named Eratus, who says, we are his offspring. Again, originally referring to Zeus, but Paul sees in this truth about who the one true God is. He says, uh, I think he's thinking about Genesis 1. I think Paul is thinking about the creation story, talking about God creating the peoples through one man, through Adam and Eve. And, and he kind of says, look, this is, um, this, is, this is like Genesis 1. God creates humans, male and female, in his image. And so the Greek poets, however imperfectly and incompletely, were on to something. They, they spoke truth without even necessarily knowing it. Um, I, I find it fascinating that Paul, the guy who knew the Bible inside and out, a Jewish rabbi, could also quote Greek poets. You know, that, that he could quote Moses in one breath and Epimenides in the next. Not that they were equal, like not at all in his view. I mean, he believed, as we said, we believe a couple of weeks ago, that the scriptures are God-breathed, his inspired word. Epimenides is just merely a human voice. But if Paul's bringing the good news of Jesus to, to, to the culture of Athens, then, then he's going to quote authorities that they kind of hold to be up here. You know, he's, he's going to get to know their voices and, and apply those to this, to this good news. This is really just part of that whole listening thing that we talked about last week. When we're paying attention to our culture, listening and, and understanding, it's not just that we're looking at the idols, we're also looking for the bridge points, for, for the connection points as well. And, and we could do this in a number of ways. <laughs> it's, it's pretty fun. I, ha I, had, I had a whole illustration planned out, but I noticed that there are a bunch of kids in the auditorium, so we're not going to do that illustration. You'll have to ask me later, perhaps. Um, but I, I thought of another, I thought, <laughs> you're like, what is going on here? 14A sermon, that's what's going on. Um, no, there's, I'll, I'll use another, I'll use, I'll use another example. Maybe isn't as good, but um, Douglas Coupland, Copeland, however you want to say his name, that, that's, uh, that's a famous author from, I think actually from the North Shore in Vancouver. And I remember years ago reading his, uh, reading his novels. This is the guy who coined the term Generation X, pretty influential in, in Canadian kind of literature. I remember reading one of his books. It was called Life After God. And it was about uh, a generation growing up without any knowledge of God whatsoever, 
which I, I think about a lot of people in Deep Cove, and I think that's, that's true. There are a lot of people who are growing up, and it's not that they've grown up in church and have rejected it, but they've grown up without any exposure at all. And Copeland is kind of saying, this is the first generation where that's happened and in, in Canadian society. But then at the very end of the book, this, this character is just so broken. Life has, life has just become so broken. He finds himself... Um, bathing like naked, there's the 14a part of this one, uh, in some kind of mountain pool somewhere up, uh, up here in BC. And he just goes, all of a sudden I just realized I need God. You know, it's, it's, that's, a, that's, that's a far distance still from the cross, but, but here's this recognition by a secular author, hugely influential, saying actually we've grown up in the society without God and actually we really do need him. Remember that hitting me. And I, I, think, I think that's the kind of thing we need to be on the lookout for. Those, those bridge points, those, those, little, those, those little openings, those little recognitions in our culture that, that maybe the way we're going isn't real great and maybe there's something, something in Christian faith that's valuable that we've kind of neglected to see. You know what I mean? That's what Paul's doing, I think. He's finding these bridge points and, and saying, hey, what, what, if we, what if we build this out a little bit? But that's not going to be enough. So the third thing that Paul does is I, I would say he, he points to the other bridges that they have tried to build and says, look how they haven't worked. Look how they didn't cross the gap. He's pointing to inconsistencies in their view. So after he quotes the poets, he, he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He says, look, you guys have heard this from your poets, right? Okay, let's, let's go with this. Let's track with this a little bit. We are made in God's image. So how does it make sense to make these gods in our image? How does it make sense to try to represent this God in gold or silver or stone? If this God that we talk about is, is Lord over all of creation, then how can we contain him in temples? How could this God ever need anything from us? You see, we, we, we've got some common ground, but the way you're living this out isn't working. You see what Paul does here? He, he kind of goes with them to a certain point, and then he says, well, if this is all true, then why are you building temples? Why are you offering, offering sacrifices? Why, why are you creating idols? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow from that. And I think this is the kind of thing Jesus would often do too in the, in the parables. He would, for example, he would kind of build a premise that everybody would agree on. Like, like the story of some tenants killing the, 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 the son of the landlord in an attempt to gain the land for themselves. And all of his listeners would have said, yeah, that's terrible. That's an awful thing to do. How immoral. And then Jesus turns it around and he says, but this is what you're going to do to me. This is what you've done to the prophets. It just kind of shows them the inconsistency between their values and how they're actually living. And, and this is, uh, I, I kind of tried to do this a little bit last week with the idea of tolerance in our culture. 
And we can say that, that classically speaking, the idea of tolerance, of creating space in society for people of different beliefs and convictions is a good thing. I believe we can get on board with that. But the way that's lived out in our culture is increasingly inconsistent with that ideal. It's undermining it. It's intolerant of any who don't subscribe to the same kinds of values. So for example, Trinity Western University, a private Christian university, is not trying to impose its biblical Christian ethics on others in society, and yet our government and the courts say that Trinity Western can't grant certain degrees unless they abandon those biblical Christian ethics. So is, is, that, is that what tolerance looks like? There's no place for a private Christian university to grant a law degree, for example? It's inconsistent with the, the values that supposedly are held in our society. One more example of this, and then, then I'll move on to the next point. Uh, W.H. Auden was, I don't read poetry, and that's not going to surprise you one bit, but I, I don't know poetry. But apparently, W.H. Auden was one of the, maybe the greatest English-speaking poet of the 20th century. And uh, in the 1920s and 30s, he was about the most unlikely person to become a Christian uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, he believed in the inherent goodness of humanity. Didn't think that humans really needed God. We're good. We're good on our own. And then one day in 1939, so he's living in New York, and he, uh, he walks into a German theater. And on screen is a, is a Nazi propaganda film of the German invasion of Poland. And on the screen, Nazi soldiers are bayoneting women and children, and Auden hears the audience yelling out, kill them, kill them. And he, that, that was just, that just ended this, this, this illusion he had of the inherent goodness of humanity and the lack of need for God. It became the first major step in his journey to Christian faith, was just realizing the inconsistency, the unworkability of this, of this view, this worldview that he had had. So we're befriending, we're identifying bridge points, we're also identifying where other bridges have fallen short, those inconsistencies where it's not just that people don't know who they worship, they haven't been consistent even with what they say they do know. But even that isn't enough. If you're building a bridge, it's actually got to go somewhere, right? It's got to get to the other side. And so that's what, what Paul does here. He's, he's going to complete the bridge. He's going to build it to the other side by pointing to the gospel. You know, we, we were talking about this. We're going through Acts 17, and you see how Paul is, is using, you know, Greek poets, and he's, he's drawing on some ideas that they would have been familiar with. But in the end, what is at the heart of his message? What's at the core of it? Well, verse 18 we read about the Epicureans and Stoics who, who say certain things because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. That's at the heart of what Paul is saying. Verse 30, at the climax of his speech, again, he says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, by the way, that's, that's an interesting idea where Paul says uh, God overlooked that ignorance. 
Uh, he says something similar in Romans 3. He says, uh, talks about how Jesus gave his life on the cross for us. And, and Paul says God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, and his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This idea that, that God, I think, judges. I think we see this in Paul's letters and other parts of the scriptures. That God judges us based on the revelation that we have been given. But now, the good news of Jesus is, is going out into the world. And, and, and as we've talked about, the gospel is God's full self-revelation to humanity. Jesus is, is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. The very image of God. And so there's no more need to grope around in the darkness because, because in Jesus, God has made himself known. The light has shone in the darkness. And so you're, you're held accountable, ultimately, to how you've responded to Jesus. You see, this, this preaching of the gospel, it causes a crisis. It, it creates the need for a decision to be made. If Jesus really is the Son of God, God in the flesh, then there's no room for idolatry in your life. If he really is the Messiah, the Son of God, that's going to change everything. That's, that's going to alter everything in your life. You are held accountable based on how you have responded to Jesus. And Paul is, is not afraid of saying this. And, and I think this is the thing that impresses me most about him, actually, in the end. Like, yeah, he, he knows the Greek poets, and he can quote them, and, and, and you know, he's, he's, he's clever in terms of identifying where their bridges have fallen short. But this is the thing that impresses me most, that, that here in front of these intellectual elites... Paul does not shy away from saying things that he knows will not make a whole lot of sense to them. You know, he talks about, he talks about Jesus being the judge of humanity. How does that sound to a bunch of Athenians? Some Jewish guy who is crucified is going to judge us, sophisticated and intellectual Greeks? That's, just not, that's not just weird, that's offensive. And then you're saying that this man rose from the dead? You have to understand, physical resurrection was not a category in Greek thinking. It wasn't even something that you would want. The whole idea in Greek uh, philosophy was, was an immaterial soul escaping from the body, escaping from the world. So physical resurrection, like none of this makes sense. None of this would sound very appealing. Guess what? Paul doesn't care. He's not going to say, oh, this, this is going to rub you guys the wrong way, so I'm not going to say it. This stuff, Jesus being the judge of the living and the dead, Jesus being the risen one, this, this, is, not, this is not like negotiable. This is core. And no matter where Paul goes, no matter how it butts up against the cultures of that place, Paul's going to say it. I, just, I think about liberal Christian theology over the last few hundred years, and this whole project of demythologizing Christian faith, of saying we want to try to make Christian faith more palatable, more reasonable, and so let's get rid of all of those unscientific, non-modern things. Let's, let's get rid of the miracles, the supernatural, angels and demons, Jesus' divinity, his resurrection, none of those things make sense. So, so let's get rid of those. Let's find the kernel of truth that will make sense to people. You'd think, oh, well, that, that, would, that should build some bridges with people in our culture. It fails 
again and again and again. Because the power of the gospel doesn't come from its accommodation to culture. It comes from its confrontation of culture, its transformation of culture. And you see, people still try to do this today. How many followers of Jesus feel embarrassed about certain elements of faith and just kind of don't want to talk about it, you know? And, and so we deny the existence of hell or we mute the biblical witness on sexual morality. And, and so we think that by doing this, we'll make it easier for people. It's going to fail for the same reason that kind of approach has always failed. You see, we don't engage our culture by making faith less strange. We engage our culture so that we can speak of faith strangeness. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? We don't engage our culture with the motivation of getting people to like us and approve of us. We engage our culture because of love, because we believe that other people need Jesus as desperately as we do. Which leads me to the thing that Paul didn't do. I talked about what he, had, what he did do. By the way, uh, last parent equipping night, I, I loved uh, one comment we had at the table from somebody who's kind of new to church. And she said, I love that you guys are so weird. You know, she said that about our church. It's like, I love that you guys are just so, you think so differently about things. And I love that. I'm so glad about that. Not everybody does. But in this case, I was like, I love that. That's so good. But it leads me to this thing that Paul didn't do. Paul did not bow down to Athenian culture. He, didn't, he wasn't intimidated. You have to understand again, this is the grandest stage in the ancient world for new ideas, right? Athens is the intellectual center. This, 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 is, this is the big leagues. And Paul doesn't get intimidated. He doesn't, uh, he's not ashamed. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of think, oh, this, this isn't going to go over well, so I shouldn't say this. He, he's, he's just, he goes with this confidence. You see, Paul believed that the good news that was good in Antioch, that was good in Lystra, that was good in Derby, that was good in Iconium, was good in Athens too. He believed that this message about Jesus that was true, that was true in Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica was true in Athens too. That the people of Athens needed this as much as anybody else. And I think sometimes we get kind of intimidated by our culture. And we, we kind of feel like, oh man, like this old message about Jesus dying and rising again isn't relevant to the world. It is! It's the most relevant thing there ever is! It's the deepest need of the human heart. And that hasn't changed. And so I, I just, I, I, I pray that, that myself and all of us who are followers of Jesus would go out into the world filled with love and filled with confidence. Confidence and boldness to engage our culture knowing that the gospel is true and good and beautiful and it's, and, and it's consistent. It's what, it's what people need. It's, it's the deepest need of the human heart. Now, I was going to wrap this up today by uh, taking some controversial kind of topic and, and kind of tracking it through um, this, this kind of model. But in the end, I thought, no, I actually, I want to address, I've got something to say to two groups of people. Uh, so one, the first group is, is followers of Jesus um, who want to engage our culture. But even after going through this, and you look at what Paul did in Athens, you're probably thinking, I can't do that. <laughs> 
You know, like, and you're probably not going to stand in, in the food court at Capilano University or Park Royal and just start, you know, hey guys, I got four points for you today. Listen up, you know, like probably not going to happen. You're probably not going to be hauled in front of the North Vancouver District, you know, council to, to explain the core of Christian faith or anything like that. And even individually, individual conversations, you're probably thinking, I don't know how this is going to, like, again, you're not going to be like, all right, we're talking about this topic. I want you to stop for 20 minutes. I've got something for you. Here we go. So what do you do with this? I think it starts, it starts with your own posture, with your own thoughts, that you, in time of prayer, and time of reflection, that you would take some issue that's really on your heart, something that weighs on you, that you see happening around, uh, around us, and, and I just encourage you to take that and, and on your own to track it through this, this kind of model, right? To kind of say, where, where are the bridge points? Where's the common ground that we can affirm? Where are the inconsistencies? How does this fall short? And how does the gospel address what's, what's really at the heart of this? And I would just encourage you, do that. Try to do that on your own. That's your homework. You got homework this week. Woo! Take that issue. And go home and, and just kind of track that through that model. And the more you do this, the more you train yourself to have this kind of posture towards issues in our culture, because this is what we often do, right? We, either, either, we often either react emotionally and impulsively to things that go on in our world, or we just run away and withdraw and disengage. But I want us to be more thoughtful and intentional. You know, to train ourselves to have this posture, this kind of positive engagement where we're looking to identify ways that the gospel speaks into some of this stuff without compromising any truth. And then I also want to address those who aren't yet followers of Jesus, whether you're here or you're, you're joining us, you're listening in later. Um, maybe you're seeking. Maybe you're like the Athenians and you've been throwing up idols all over the place because you're, you're looking for ultimate meaning and purpose and trying to figure out who God is. And, uh, and, and maybe you've even been coming to church for a little while and you got the sense that there's something important about this Jesus guy, but you haven't really put your faith in him yet. There's a, there's a, a line here from Acts 17 that Paul, that Paul says, I think is really important. He's talking again about creation, going back to Genesis 1, and he says God did this so that they, the people of the nations, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. You see, what we, see, what we, what we find here is that God is the ultimate bridge builder. You've maybe been searching for God. I have news for you. He's been searching for you. He's been looking for you. And in fact, he has built a bridge between you and him. There really is a chasm. There's a chasm between you and him. But he has bridged that gap through Jesus. He came in the flesh. He came among us. And then he went to the cross. And he gave his life as a sacrifice for our sin. He removed that barrier. Bridged that gap. So that we wouldn't have to grope around in the darkness. We wouldn't have to search anymore. But that we, would, that we could know him and walk in relationship with him. 
I, uh, there's, there's somebody here, well, I'll just say Edward, Edward's testimony. If you ever get a chance, ask our facility manager, Edward, about his testimony. Because Edward has, has told me numerous times he had been searching his whole life, believed in God, but knew there was something more, was searching, searching, searching. And when, when he heard about Jesus, it all just kind of clicked. And it was like the search was over. This, this is home. This is it. You know, Paul says in, uh, in 2 Corinthians, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I implore you, be reconciled to God. He has built this bridge to us in Jesus Christ and he invites you to walk over that bridge and to know life with him now and forever. Uh, let's pray, and then Nate's going to lead us in, in communion to respond to this. Ah, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you so much that we don't need to um, grow up around in the darkness trying desperately to figure out who you are, but that you came into the world. You are God become flesh. You have made known to us who God is. And you have died in our place so that we could be in relationship with you. Perhaps, whether you're here or online or listening later, perhaps you're in that place of searching, of looking, and you're hearing this. I pray that, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be touching your heart, showing you that this is good, this is true. This is the love of God for you that Jesus gave his life so that you could be forgiven. I just want to invite you, there's no magic words here, but just invite you to, uh, to accept him, to walk across that bridge in faith. Put your trust in Jesus and receive that gift of reconciliation with God. And then Lord, I pray for those here who are followers of yours, who live in a, in a culture, in a world where some of this stuff is just, it's not real popular. It's not common anymore for people to, to submit their beliefs to the word of God, to live lives that are not for themselves, but for the glory of God. And, uh, and some of us, Lord, maybe feel intimidated. We feel timid in this culture, in our workplace, in our family even, in other settings where we might feel alone as a Christian. And I wanna pray, Holy Spirit, that you would empower your sons and your daughters 
Pour out your Holy Spirit on them, Lord, so that they would have courage and boldness to engage our culture, to speak the good news, to let people know there's a bridge. There's also a bridge church, but there's a bridge. And I pray that you just fill them with that courage and that boldness. And we wouldn't be fearful anymore. That we wouldn't be militant or aggressive or anything like that, but that there would just be this like loving, peaceful confidence. Holy Spirit, empower us so that we could engage our culture with the good news, even just in a tiny little bit like the way Paul did in Athens. And Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, that we be filled with fresh joy today, knowing that just as Paul was building bridges in Athens, you built a bridge to us. You've made yourself known to us. You have died for us, and we praise you and love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're simply just wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know a little bit more about our church, you can do that through accessing our website. There you can connect with us and also have access to different types of content. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of this world and wants to give you your hope as well. We believe that the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.